Welcome to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Each and every podcast, hosts Mike Niemer and Greg Frank will bring you energy experts to help you better understand the renewable and sustainability space. Education is important to us because it's important to you, the listener. Now here's Mike Niemer and Greg Frank. It is episode 185 of The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. My name is Greg Frank. Just along for the intro today, and then we're going to get to eRenewable CEO Mike Niemer, who has a pair of guests coming at you. But as we always like to get things started with, let's hear from Mike's better half and Niemer. eRenewable COO has a few words for us to get us started. And Niemer here, COO of eRenewable. If you are a wind, solar, or battery storage developer, and you're looking to find an off-taker our online live auction is a perfect platform to help you find that buyer. Conversely, if you're a CNI customer and you're looking to establish a PPA or VPPA, our auction platform could work for you. To learn more about how we can assist you with your power purchase agreement, visit us at eRenewable.com. And now, back to the Green Insider. Welcome to the Green Insider podcast powered by eRenewable. I am Mike Niemer, and today's guest, I have two actually today. They come from one of the premier energy companies in the United States, and I'm pleased to have them on. Uh, Because there are two, and we have a lot to talk about, this is going to be part one of a two-part series that we're going to do with this firm. But before I name the firm, I have a pop quiz for all you listeners. Can you tell me the number one producer of carbon-free energy in the United States? Or can you answer, who has... Three quarters of the Fortune 100 companies helping provide their energy needs for those companies. Maybe you've guessed it. I've got a gentleman from Constellation Energy today on the, on the podcast. I'm very pleased to welcome uh, Raj Bazaj, the Vice President of Sustainability Solutions, and Richard Spelke, the Principal of Retail Markets. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. Glad to be here. Yeah. Thanks, Mike, me too. Yeah. Well, uh, before we get started, I like to always have everybody kind of introduce themselves and give a little history on their self. Raj, do you want to go ahead and uh, uh, tell the listeners a little bit about your foundation and how you ended up at Constellation with what you're doing? Uh, sure, Mike. Would love to do that. Uh, like Mike said, I'm Raj Bazaj. I'm the Vice President of Sustainability Solutions. I've been in this role for about uh, three and a half years now, had the fortune or misfortune, I guess, depending on how you look at it, of starting a few weeks before COVID hit. Uh, so um, my team, which is uh, a group of individuals that um, sell uh, and market different variations of our marketing products, ranging from energy efficiency to um, renewables to, to analytics, uh, and never has gotten together, Mike. So uh for the first time in two weeks, we're as a team going to meet post COVID, which will be extremely exciting. But that's how new our team is. And the team was really put together because of all the changes we were seeing with our customers. I mean, serving so many CNI customers, we have seen the, the shift away from brown to green power over the last few years. It accelerated uh, during COVID and, and now it's, it's going, uh, and, and, and the, the slope is even steeper in terms of folks wanting to make this change. And my team works closely with these customers, trying to put a plan together on how they determine where they are today from a carbon footprint standpoint and where they want to go and what is their end point in terms of timing and, and, and carbon emissions 
to appease internally and, and externally all their stakeholders. Well, before we get to Richard, Raj, uh, where is your team located all throughout the United States or, are you, or is everybody with you in Michigan? No, we, we are um, uh, very spread out across uh, the country, um, you know, starting in, uh, in New England, uh, uh, down into the into Florida and then California all the way to the East Coast. So uh, we're we're across the country. Very good. Well, now let's get to Richard. Richard, tell us a little bit about your backstory. Yeah, sure, Mike. I'd be glad to do that. So I've been with a number of retail suppliers in my career, mostly Constellation. The vast majority of my years are with with Constellation in the retail power space, and uh, I've been in all kinds of different departments supporting the company. I've been in, in billing. I've been in operations. I've been in pricing. Uh, I've worked in regulatory. I've really touched a lot of bases and I've learned a lot of how, how the pieces connect. I've worked in a lot of different states. Uh, most recently, though, for the past number of years, I've been in this, this role of, of retail market development that you mentioned is my title. So the, um, the position I'm in is where I'm working in the monopoly states that do not allow retail choice and trying to work with customers and stakeholders there and policymakers, uh, you know, advocating for the opportunity to choose one's retail supplier and competitive market, uh, you know, uh, rules and, you know, options. So that, that's been a real challenge to try to get that word out and answer their questions. And there's a lot of people advocating for that in a lot of states. So I'll be talking a little bit about that in my remarks later about the differences and we'll, we'll cover that, but there's no doubt about it. Renewables are definitely the hot item these days and probably will be for the foreseeable future that Raj mentioned. That's definitely a, a driving force, even in, the, in, in customers wanting to have more choices in the monopoly states is because of their desire for access to more renewable options. So that's a big part of it. And so your podcast is definitely hitting the right nerve, I think. Well, thank you for that. Well, gentlemen, thank you for uh, joining us. It's always a pleasure to have somebody come on that works for such a dynamic company as Constellation. So thank you for that. And so, uh, Raj, before we get into the crust of the, the, the podcast here, would you uh, give everybody a story about Constellation and tell them about the company itself and give them a little history on that? Because I know they've had a little change in the last couple of years. There's been a spinoff. So I'll let you go into that and uh, take a couple of minutes to tell everybody about Constellation that doesn't know about them already. Yeah, Mike. I mean, we like to call ourselves uh, the new old company. And that's because, I mean, Constellation as a company has been around for a long, long time. But uh, uh, last year, uh, we formally um, spun off from Exelon as a brand new entity. Got listed on the uh, NASDAQ Stock Exchange as a Fortune 200 company. Uh, and the, the timing uh, was was incredible because um, of what we do um, as Constellation and how it's played into what's happening with our uh, with our customers, along with uh, uh, the view that uh, the country and now the world has about nuclear energy and the IRA and and all the things that have happened uh, with the Biden administration and the focus on sustainability. And I'll connect all these dots here for you in in, in a minute, but. As a company, um, Constellation, we have the largest nuclear fleet um, in the U.S. So uh, when it comes to carbon-free energy with our nuclear assets, along with hydro, solar, and wind um, that we also have in our portfolio, we have the ability to provide um, 
uh, our customers with, with clean energy um, in, in a lot of different ways. We also have a very large wholesale uh, desk. And along with that, um, and you started uh, the conversation here, the introductions talking about Constellation and, and our retail business. And uh, the fact that, you know, we serve three quarters of the Fortune 100 companies. And overall, you know, we have 2 million customers between our CNI and residential business. So we have a very good handle on our customers in terms of where they are, what they're going. And we pride ourselves on our risk management capabilities in terms of understanding what our customers are looking for, knowing what's happening in the markets, and then providing products and services that can help our customers with respect to price and managing risk at the same time. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention here is that, you know, constellation and sustainability, I mean, sustainability is something that's only been talked a lot about over the last few years, but as Exelon before, not constellation, we've talked about uh, sustainability for quite a while. We actually produced our first corporate GHG reduction goal in 2008, where we talked, you know, the conversation was about an 8% reduction in our carbon footprint. And since then, you know, we have progressively made other announcements. We have exceeded those announcements. And then as a new company, um, last year, once we uh, spun off from Exelon, we we made uh, another very significant uh, commitment in terms of uh, um, our Constellation's climate commitment. And that was by 2040, 100% of our own generation will be carbon-free. Uh, by 2040, 100% reduction of our operations-driven emissions. And then uh, last year, um, our CEO also announced that we wanted to spread the message and educate in terms of sustainability. And so as part of that goal, we were going to provide 100% of our CNI customers with specific information about how to meet GAG reduction goals for themselves. So we look at ourselves as a company that kind of walks the walk. We are doing a lot about sustainability by ourselves, but then we're also uh, trying to educate our customers and uh, find ways to help them accelerate their carbon reduction goals, because that's important for for everyone, um, including our kids and grandkids, Mike. Yeah, no, those are some lofty goals and uh, very admirable. So uh, thank you and congratulations for meeting all your targets along the way and then your new goals in 2040. Uh, let's hope that you're able to reach those satisfactory. So that's great. Uh, as you were talking about Constellation, you brought up uh, the retail side of things. And that's where I'm going to bring Rich in here. And Rich, why don't you go through for the listeners and truly explain the regulated and deregulated type markets, competitive versus the non-competitive states or uh, areas of the country, and uh, give people kind of a high overview of that and then start sharing some of your thoughts along the way. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Yeah, that, this is an important uh, topic that I want to spend a little extra time on. And then since we've broken the podcast into two, as you've mentioned, this will set the framework or the baseline, I think, to for the future uh, conversation in the second part. It's just really important, I think, for listeners to understand, and there may be some confusion. I know there is confusion just from my work across the country on on this issue about, you know, the monopoly states, the competitive states. You, you often hear the word deregulated thrown around, regulated, and there's a whole bunch of misunderstanding or, you know, people have different definitions of things. And so I, I do want to cover a little bit of this and like, you know, how we define things and what it means and, and, and whatever, just sort of set the framework. So I'll start with 
just going, you know, back in time. It's, it's always important to start, you know, I think it, where, where things began. And if you look way back at even back as far as uh, Thomas Edison, you know, we think of Thomas Edison. You're thinking as, way back then, aren't you? Yeah, <laughs> I'm, going way, I'm going way back. I'm going way back to Thomas Edison. So he invented the light bulb, right? We all know that. I think everybody learned that in school or some somewhere along the way. But, you know, what a lot of people don't give Thomas Edison credit for is he also invented the electric power industry so that people could use his light bulb invention because there was no electricity <laughs> distributed around the, you know, the neighborhoods and the cities and the across the country, in fact, you know, to use light bulbs. So, and, and in those days, late 1890s or so, early 1900s, it was an unregulated, competitive uh, business because it was so brand new. And I have some some pictures that I sometimes show to our new employees when I'm, I'm teaching them some of the, the, you know, some of the history of our of our company and of our industry. I have a picture of New York City back in the day when they literally had dozens and dozens of wires crisscrossing each other across the street. You literally could choose what wires you were getting your power from. It was crazy. It was chaotic. It was inefficient. It was probably dangerous. All of those things. And then as the decades and the years followed, you know, of course, the industry evolved and the industry became uh, became regulated. And, you know, the traditional vertically integrated monopoly took hold in around the 1930s or so, you know, where the utilities were granted a service territory and, you know, basically given a legally permissible monopoly structure and an exchange that that company that, that you know, utility, as we call it today, had to give the state the jurisdiction to regulate their rates. So they have a legally protected monopoly, but in exchange, they give the state the authority to regulate their prices or their rates, and it was called the regulatory compact, and that's existed in our country now for, you know, many decades, and around the 1930s, I think, is when that, that began. But along the way, even though that served our country very well for many, many decades, you know, through uh, World War II and, you know, everything that happened after that, around the, you know, I'm going to say around the 80s or 90s, there started to be a, a break in that, uh, in that structure that, that started to crack. Some of its flaws started to show. And this was particular in the states that had really high prices relative to the states that didn't have high prices. And Raj mentioned our strong nuclear presence at our company. A lot of the times uh, that happened back in the 80s and 90s, a lot of the states that had high costs were those states that had the nuclear facilities and, and some of the construction costs were higher than expected. And there was a lot of reasons going on. So like I remember even as a kid, uh, I'm from Illinois and I'm in Illinois uh, still. I remember, you know, learning how to drive in the 80s. And I remember them being signs on the highway put there, you know, like billboards, you know, from the state of Wisconsin at the time, encouraging businesses to leave Illinois and relocate in Wisconsin because the price of electricity was like half. And I didn't know what was going on. I was like, you know, it's like I said, I was 15, 16, learning how to drive. I didn't understand why, but, you know, I, I guess I understood that that was the way it was and that was, you know, the way it went. But uh, so that was happening. And so a lot of states like Illinois, you know, embraced this new idea of competition. Hey, maybe we should keep the wires company as the monopoly. You don't want 12 different sets of wires going up and down the street. That's still inefficient and not a good way to do it. But yet the generation itself could be competitive. 
And so there actually then became, there were actually more than 14, but now we have 14 states that have embraced that model and continue to utilize that model that have separated the generation completely from the wires. And so the wires are still a monopoly regulated by the state, but the generation is no longer owned and included in the rate base of those utilities in those 14 states. And so if, uh, if people want to know what those are, you know, RESA, the Retail Energy Supplier Association that Constellation is a member of, has all this detail and has a whole slideshow on this, uh, on this topic. But anyway, so the definition then of the 14 states that allow competition according to RESA and according to Constellation is as follows. There's two conditions. It's really pretty simple. Condition one is uh, all the customers in those states, residential, commercial, industrial, can choose a retail supplier without jumping through hoops, without filling out special forms, you know, like a standard business practice. They don't have to file a petition at the commission or whatever. And two, and equally importantly, those utilities in those states do not own the uh, power generation any longer. They did when they were vertically a monopoly, but they don't any longer. It's not in the rate base. So if you meet those two conditions, you're deemed a competitive state that has choice, that has competition. And if you're not, if you don't meet those two criteria, then you're not. Because I know there's still a handful of states that we call the hybrid states. Like for example, I'll pick, I'll pick on Raj's state, Michigan, where Raj is. And Raj knows this well because he and I have you know worked with, worked on Michigan issues for a long time. But like Michigan allows 10% of the load to choose a supplier. So there's still a vertically integrated monopoly state. There's still very little choice that's allowed for the average customer. They still have uh, generators in the rate base. So they don't meet either of the criteria that, that define them as a competitive state. Yet, there are still a handful of customers that are allowed to choose their supplier under the 10% rule. So we call that a hybrid state. But they still are pretty much a, a vertically integrated monopoly for the most part. So enough on that. But the reason I bring this up is because people get confused. You know, people say the word utility, for example. Well, that's a pretty benign word, right? We use the word utility all the time. But when you talk about a utility in, you know, say Pennsylvania or Texas or even Illinois, where I am, those are wires only. They only own the wires. So yeah, they're a utility and we call them a utility, but they don't own the generation and generation is not in the rate base and you have choice of supplier in those states. If you say the word utility in say Wisconsin, just north of Illinois, where I am, just by way of example, picking on Wisconsin here a little bit, you know, that means that they own the wires, yes, but they also own almost all of the generation as well. And the generation is in the rate base of that vertically integrated monopoly utility in Wisconsin. Hey, Richard, so, let me ask you a question. Yeah, real go, ahead, quick. go ahead. So, so for the listeners that are not energy experts, if they're old enough to remember when the long distance phone companies all separated from Southwestern Bell. Well, that's kind of the same premise. Uh, There's still one set of lines, but different people. You could had open access to sign up for whatever long distance carrier you wanted. MCI, AT&T, whoever it was. I believe, was that, wasn't that in the early 90s that that took place and the deregulation in the 14 states was in the early 2000s? Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. In fact, the the electric power industry, you know, followed on the heels of several, uh, you know, deregulation efforts. If we're going to use that word, I don't like that word. I'll tell you why in a minute. But you're absolutely right to refer to that because yes, the 
the, the trucking industry, the airline industry, the phone, telecommunications, as you mentioned, Mike, all those preceded, you know, the electric power industry allowing choice and restructuring. And it is very similar. You know, we talked about the wires. We call them delivery services generically in the competitive states. And so, yes, everyone pays the same delivery services fee to the utility, the wires company that delivers the power, but where the generation comes from and the contract that the customers enter, enters into with the retail supplier, of course, is, you know, unique to that customer with the, with the supplier that they choose. They all well, let me ask you, charge. why, why, why was the phone companies able to, for lack of a better word, your hated word, deregulate in all 50 states and we're only in 14 for energy? What's the, what causes that? Well, I have my own opinion about that, but in general, I will just say that, first of all, there's a couple of reasons. Reason one is that there were a few missteps, like in the very beginning, 1999, 2000, 2001, California in particular set up a wholesale market that was not sustainable. They had certain rules and certain uh, rules that made it uh, like, you know, go out and get out of control, you know, because of some of the constraints they had. And I'll say that, you know, I'll pick on Enron here. We all remember Enron, at least those of us old enough to remember when Enron was an entity. And I'm still mad at Enron to this day. If I'm allowed to be angry with them, I still am. They, instead of trying to help fix the problems in California and saying, hey, we have these, uh, like, you know, I'm sure a lot of you have seen the movies about Enron where they deliberately withheld power to drive the price up and did all kinds of manipulative actions that were, you know, not conducive to making the market sustainable. But instead of, you know, being honest about it and saying, hey, regulators, we got this problem. We have these incentives to do these things that are not right that we need to fix. Instead of doing that, they exacerbated the problem by exploiting those those rules to make more money for themselves in the short run. But in the, in the long run, of course, they had to shut the market down because it was not sustainable. So, so in answering your question, Mike, we had bad actors like Enron and bad market designs like the California Power Exchange that preceded the California ISO, that, that started off on the wrong foot and it caused a lot of states to put the genie back in the bottle. That was That's issue number one. Issue number two is, hey, let's face it, if you're a vertically integrated monopoly utility and you've got all that capital in the rate base with a guaranteed rate of return, you like that, you know, and your stockholders like that. And so the vertically integrated utilities that, that own the generation you know, want to keep it that way. And so they do all they can uh, politically and regulatorily. And of course, they have a lot of influence in the states that they're in naturally to uh, to keep it that way. So we have a, an uphill climb on the on the regulated or on the, on the uh, competitive side to try to make the case for competitive markets. And we've got a ton of data to show that the competitive markets are doing much better price performance wise. <coughs> Excuse me. Compared to the monopoly states, I think you've seen some of those charts, Mike, that I've showed you. And again, the recent website has a number, number of them posted. But still, we have the, uh, the political reality that the uh, vertically integrated uh, utilities in the, in the monopoly states you know, want to keep it that way. Yes, Richard, thank you for, uh, for that download. Uh, that did kind of explain uh, the differences and gave everybody a little history about what's going on and who owns the generation, so on and so forth. And uh, the question that I always hear people ask also, and I know this is in your wheelhouse, Richard, how come my state is not also deregulated or uh, open market? 
Yeah, you ever see the fourteen growing? Yeah, well, let, let, let me uh, give you a uh, a lash with a wet noodle here, Mike, for using that word deregulated so often, and then I'll tell you why I'm I'm lashing you with a wet noodle here a little bit. A lot of people use that word deregulated. I know what you mean. You mean choice. You mean competition. You mean the things that I talked about. Of course, I know what you mean. You use the word deregulated, and many people in the industry use that word. But I want to encourage your audience and yourself to not use that word. I'll tell you why. There's two reasons. Reason one is it's wrong. We are not deregulated. There is no such thing as a deregulated state. There aren't any. So the 14 states I refer to that allow choice and allow competition are not deregulated. We are regulated like crazy. And if you don't believe me, we have a small brigade of compliance attorneys that work at our company and work at the other competitive suppliers as well, who are busy full-time complying with the many regulations that we have to, uh, you know, comply with in order to retain our license as retail suppliers. So we are hardly deregulated. We are regulated like crazy. We have uh, lots of presence at the regulatory commissions, lots of filings, lots of hearings, lots of discussions, lots of meetings. Believe me, we are not deregulated. So that's reason one, it's just not true. Secondly, we shouldn't use this word because the opponents, you know, the people who want to retain the monopoly structure, the opponents of, of choice, the opponents of competitive markets, they love to use that word deregulate. Oh, you're just trying to deregulate things. They try to get, and they use that word with a negative connotation, implying chaos and, and you know, implying like a, the wild, wild west, like anything could happen. Like, you know, people are going to go without power. People are going to pay super high prices. People are going to be harmed, danger, you know, taking your hand off the wheel, you know, craziness. You know, they, they use that word with a negative connotation, which is also not true. If the competitive markets actually behave that way, then, you know, we would have, you know, shut them down a long time ago. That's not the way it is. I live in Illinois, a competitive state. We've been competitive for 23 years. And I'm looking out my window right now, or I could, and nobody seems too worried about it. They're not jumping out of the windows. Everything seems to be working fine. Electricity's flowing. And, you know, you know, for the most part, I think all is well. So anyway, it's not deregulated. It's not the crazy wild, wild west. So those are the two reasons why I encourage us not to use that word, even though I know a lot of people do use it. But at the end of the day, you know, the big difference between the, the uh, competitive markets and the traditional vertically integrated uh, monopoly states is that, you know, like, yes, it's, it is about who owns the generation for sure, but all the things that come with that. So a lot of times, uh, you know, people think there's a big risk to going with, you know, the competitive side of the ledger. But in reality, the generation, the investment and capital cost to build generation in the competitive states that risk is on the investors. It's not in the rate base. It's not on the customers. It's in the monopoly states where the customers are taking the risk because the customers themselves, whether they know it or not, are taking on the risk of which generation is built, which types of technology are being used, the type of fuel arrangements, if any, unless it's renewable. But even then, it's a, it's, the risk is on the customers. It's not on the um, investors, it's on the customers, though the customers may not realize it in a monopoly state that that's true. But in a competitive state, like, for example, again, picking on my own state here, Illinois, if you drive up and down the highways here where I live, you'll see, you know, solar arrays on solar farms, you'll see lots of wind generation um, happening. But if you look at, if you actually stop to pull over and look at who owns that generation here in Illinois, it's, you know, private investors, it's independent power producers, it's companies like that. But if you drive by those same facilities in a neighboring monopoly state, you will see that, you know, they are owned primarily by the utilities. 
you know, in the rate base. So that's the difference. We're both employing renewables like crazy uh, in all the states based on, you know, customer preferences and state policies. But it's the competitive states where uh, the investors are investing and, and it's not on the backs of the ratepayers. Richard and Raj, thank you for uh, joining me on part one of this Constellation series that we're doing here today. And uh, with that said, everybody knows we try to be responsible for you learning one thing on every show. Well, today we took away one very important thing in Richard Spelke's eye, the difference between deregulation and competitive markets. With that said, thank you for joining us on the Green Insider Power to Be Renewable. We'll see you next time on part two.